Let me pray for us. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, as I said earlier, we're in the midst of this sermon series called Come to the Table. The table meaning the Holy Eucharist, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. Those are the three different names that different denominational or theological ecclesial groups have given that, that uh, meal. So the Eucharist, meaning Thanksgiving, the great Thanksgiving. Communion, uh, referring to union with God and with each other. Supper, providing sustenance, as this meal does all of these things. And so today we're talking about the table of grace, and so I've got a question for you today. How would you define grace? You know, we said in our reading at the beginning of the service that, you know, we say grace before meals, right? So is it a blessing? What is it exactly? And if I were to ask each of you to give me a word or a definition, we would come up with as many words and definitions for grace as our people in this room because we all kind of perceive it in different ways and we learn a lot from each other by doing that um, but grace the idea of grace God's grace is one of the central underpinning underpinnings of our Christian faith you know the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says by grace you have been saved by faith. So it's God's grace and our faith in that grace or our trust in that grace that redeems us, that brings us into full and right relationship with God, right? So God's grace can be defined, and I'm doing all this because we're talking about the table of grace today. So I want to make sure we're all clear about what this means, okay? So God's grace can be defined as undeserved favor. It cannot be earned. It is something that is freely given. And you ought to take that and think about that, that this is how we come to this table. It's a free gift. And, and so Jesus gives us his table and gives his life freely, right? Not forced upon him by God, not forced upon him by anything other than his willingness to reflect God in how he deals with his enemies, right? Mercy, on the other hand, and in the song we just sang, we sang all about grace, amazing grace, amazing grace, but there's that word mercy in there too. And so mercy then relates to grace, but is about forgiveness or withholding deserved punishment. So in short, grace is a gift of God we can never deserve, while mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is a gift of God we could never deserve, and mercy is not getting what we deserve. And the point of the meal that we will share later today in our service is that it is designed to be a means of encountering God's grace. It is a means by which we receive grace it shows us in a tangible way 
in a metaphorical way, in a symbolic way, that a bite of bread and a sip of juice is a meal that grants us undeserved favor. And it's made known to in us in this tangible way, something we can hold, something we can smell, something we can taste, something we can see. And it's in that meal that we encounter the real presence of God, the real presence of the risen Christ, the real presence of the Holy Spirit. And whatever this has to do with the text today, I think we'll, we'll unpack as we go but I am reminded, and how could I not be reminded, that when we read M.J. Levine's book, Short Stories by Jesus, our most recent book study, she did a, a video, read a whole chapter, a very encompassing chapter, a very challenging chapter about this parable. It's often called the parable of the late workers, but it's actually a parable of the generous landowner. And she deals with that and does it in a beautiful way. But what she really wanted us to understand is that this is a parable about economic justice. Uh, so uh, let me go a little further and I'll unpack that for us. So Jesus is approaching the end of his public ministry at this point. He's, you know, on his last lap. <clears throat> He's about to foretell his death his suffering and death for the third time in the Gospel of Matthew. And shortly after that, he'll ride into Jerusalem in a jubilant procession, complete with palm branches and a donkey. In Matthew, there's two donkeys. <laughs> Not just one. And just a few days later, he will be killed, right? And as the end approaches, the stakes and the tensions are rising. Now, one way to think about this parable is the way it's been interpreted for a long time as a, um, as a uh, I don't know what the word is, where you, you make uh, the landowner Jesus or God and, you know, all of that, and then you know, so that's a way it's been interpreted for quite a while. Uh, an allegory. <laughs> an allegory. I knew it started with an A. Uh, so we, for years, pastors and teachers of the scriptures have, and commentators have talked about this as an allegory. And, uh, and so it's meant to be a count, it's meant to counter a charge by some religious authorities that Je the Jesus movement was too lax in admitting everybody including questionable characters like tax collectors and sinners and gentiles which would be all of us right uh, and this resulted over time of this interpretation of the parable as an allegory and the early workers at the vineyards then become the Jews or Jewish Christians. And the late workers become the Gentiles or Christians. But this is very misleading in this parable. First, it resonates with the ugly anti-Jewish prejudices and smacks of Christian self-congratulation. And let me tell you something. If we had had people teaching the truth about this parable and about our Jewish siblings, we, 
they wouldn't have been slaughtered over the years. They wouldn't have been denied justice over the years because, because the Christian church has been, has been part and parcel to that understanding. And so we've got to stop that and say, no, this isn't what that's about. And M.J. Levine, A.J. Levine, uh, actually is Jewish and taught us this as part of her teaching. The second thing is, for Jesus, the heart of the matter here has less to do with sectarian identity and more to do with other things, like the character of redemption as a gift and not a reward for human efforts. For example, also is the question of who's in and who's out. Uh, Jesus challenges the faith community uh, in our tendency toward conflict and contempt of others, things that are, were alive then, well alive then and things that are still alive today. And all of that happens without any reference to Judaism. <laughs> we can do it all on our own, can't we? So the thing that really stands out for me in this parable is the twist at the end, which is Jesus is known for, right? He tells this intricate parable of these people come at this hour, and then at this hour, and then at this hour, and this hour. And then we get to the end where the punchline is, everybody got the same pay. My mother hated this parable. She didn't think it was fair at all. And, you know, if we're honest, when you're hearing it read, you think, yeah, how can that be good? You know, how can that be good? You know, I can't imagine, you know. So, uh, but there's some t deep teaching here that we need to pay attention to. And, and that's when the landowner looks at the workers and says, the, the early workers, and says, you begrudge me? You're envious? Is that what this is about? That they're getting the same pay, but I told you what I was going to pay you, and I'm paying you what I agreed to pay you. Are you envious because I'm generous? Don't I get to do with my money what I, I want to do with it? And there's that word, envy. You know, of course, that envy keeps company with the other seven deadly sins. Pride, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And there's a reason all of those sins are called deadly. So just think about this for a moment. How recently have you been envious of someone? And what was it about? Now, envy is not jealousy. Jealousy is a kind of protective thing that you might be jealous to guard your reputation or you might be jealous in defense of family honor. They're, they're close, but they're not the same. Envy is about resentment, a passionate spite that can become hostility. Joseph, Joseph Epstein, an American writer who was the editor of the, who, who is the editor of the American scholar, called envy a self-poisoning of the mind. Envy is usually less about what one lacks than about what other people have. 
So envy grows from rivalry when we are unable to see our own gifts without comparing them to the gifts of others. And so you know what this creates, of course. We'll get to that. Because Diana Butler Bass puts the nail, hits the nail on the head. She says in her blog uh, on this text, capitalism thrives on envy. Envy drives marketing and advertising, is the emotional engine to influence culture, and elevates some humans to be godlike celebrities. And then we proceed to tear them down just for the fun of it, right? Or because we're envious, right? So in our reading today, Jesus is wandering through Judea with his followers teaching in parables. And shortly before, he told the the disciples, you know, he was encountered by a rich young man. And what he teaches them, the young man says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And the young man went away sadly. He was jealous for his wealth and possessions. And Jesus turned to his friends and said, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the realm of God. And the disciples looked at him and said, what? What? I mean, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus responds telling this parable. Now, that's an interesting thing. Jesus has just encountered this young man who had great wealth and could not bring himself to let go of it. And so this is the parable he tells right after that encounter. So he tells about this landowner who does something good with his money and is met by his workers grumbling in gratitude and envy toward their co-workers. The workers who showed up early in the day don't, we, we don't really admire them, do we? They, re, they, you know, they resent that the landowner has given the people who came late the same wage. They resent it. And they begrudge the workers who show up late. Why them and not us? I mean, why shouldn't we get more? We've been here all day. Them, not us, is where we get with envy. The listeners then, and perhaps those of us now, surely can identify more with the workers being treated unjustly than the landowner who shares his generosity. I mean, right? He says, I'm not unjust to you. Did you not agree to this wage? Take what is yours and go. But if I wish to give the last workers what I also give you, that's mine to give. Jesus left his story open-ended. We don't know what happens after the first workers get their money. Everybody else has already gotten their money, and now the first workers get their money. We don't know what happened. Did they leave? Did they get in a fight with the other workers when they left, trying to take their money back? You know, I mean, we don't know what happens. It's a, and it's an ambiguous statement at the end. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And and if you're like me, you read that, and you read that, and you read it, and you read it again, you go, what is that about? 
the last shall be first and the first shall be last what kind of justice is that so I thought this was an intriguing move by Diana Butler Bass in her blog uh, on this text she likens the story of the landowner and the workers to the story of Cain and Abel as an example of what envy can do you, you, you know the story. Uh, Abel's the younger brother, and he brings a gift to God of his produce, and God finds that pleasing, and Cain gets envious that God didn't find what he had given as nice. And, and so we know the outcome. Cain is so driven by his envy of his younger brother that he kills him. Envy is a deadly sin. And since the beginning of time, rivalry has fueled death. Envy is a murderer of your own soul, of the souls of others, and of the possibility of community and communion. Envy drives us to have more, to take what we think we deserve, to beat others at the game, and dare I say, this is the foundation of capitalism, isn't it? Let me see how much more I can accumulate. A bigger house, a bigger car, a boat, uh, uh, whatever. I mean, you know, we, we get driven by this. And I'm not saying we connect it. I mean, I'm not saying a lot of people. I mean, people who have resources and, and can have nice things, that should be a good thing. And we can see it as that. But when it drives us into competition and rivalry, and we collect more and get more. And then that none of that stuff goes anywhere. Do you understand that? It, it doesn't go anywhere. Even when we recycle, even when we throw it away, it doesn't go anywhere. And so we are participating in the destruction of our own environment through this sort of built-in resentment and envy. Well, God promises provision. But we fail to enjoy that provision when we spend our energy looking at what our neighbor has or what I deserve, right? Let me give you an example. When I was serving Friends Congregational Church, United Church of Christ in College Station, uh, I came to that church after I left the Methodist Church, and it was a gracious and generous church to welcome me as an out lesbian in College Station, Texas, not the most liberal place in the world. And uh, so I was serving, it was early in my ministry there. And I got invited to a choir concert at the New Methodist Church down the road. That church had been uh, founded by a, a colleague of mine who I knew, known as a Methodist. We went to school together. And it exploded, I mean literally, overnight. That church exploded in terms of numbers of people coming there and building a building and then another building and then another building. And, and so I got invited to go to a choir concert, concert there, and I went. And as I sat there and listened to the beautiful, exquisite music, this, this rage welled up in me, this anger, this frustration. As I looked at that choir and I realized that that choir had more people in it than were members of my church. 
and I couldn't get up. I had to leave. I was so upset. I was so envious. And so I walked out the door, and I have to tell you, that stayed with me for a long time. And I became obsessed with things like, how many people are in worship today? You know, uh, what's the offering? How many people are coming to this book study? What are we doing here? You know, the, I mean, I just became this obsessed person. And I realized at one point that I just had to stop. So after church every Sunday, I didn't look at the, at the offering. I didn't look at the attendance. I had to stop. And finally, that resentment lifted. But what happened in the meantime is I failed to see what I had. I had this amazing community that I was serving, that loved each other, that were committed to justice and peace, that did ministries. I mean, my mother came one time. She said, y'all do more ministries as a little church than all the big churches in town. I mean, I, we had an and a choir to beat the band. I mean, and made the roof come off the church. It was so amazing, but I missed it all because I was so obsessed and envious. Well, <laughs> so, you know, I carried that envy in my heart, and, you know, envy destroys our ability to be grateful. Why them? Why not me? Dorothy Sayers wrote, envy is the great leveler. If it cannot level things up, it will level them down. At its best, envy is a climber and a snob. At its worst, it is a destroyer. Rather than have anyone happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. So envy isn't just a personal sin. It is one that is shared in the consequences. It is a communal deadly sin. Some of what we hear today is readings of the gospel parable is that as people of faith, we are called to seek justice for all. And part of that is economic justice, that we are called to help people have work that is meaningful and life-giving and pays a living wage without regard to when they've arrived in this country or the conditions of their ethnic or cultural backgrounds and heritage. And, and part of that means that then we're committed to education and people having a free and good education, which many of us, I dare say, grew up in. And we're committed to helping level things. You know, the grace of the text today is that Paul says in the letter to the Philippians, Live in such a way that you are a credit to the message of Christ. And this is how Jesus taught. Stand united, singular in vision, contending for people's trust in the message of Christ. These are leveling words. That we are to be one with each other, joined to each other, not lording over each other. Envy drives us to elevate ourselves over others by either beating them at the game or beating them down. But the question in the parable... Are you envious because I am generous? Reminds us that we are all recipients of God's wild, extravagant generosity. And envy destroys gratitude. But the reverse is also true. Gratitude 
gratitude is the antidote to envy. That is how we focus on the things that God has given us that we can be joyful and grateful for. His story concludes with those confounding words. So the last will be first and the first will be last because you see, there is no need for first and last in that kind of environment where all are welcome, all are provided for, life without rivalry, without death, abundant life. Now, let me tell you something. Y'all know that my daddy is probably the most generous person I've ever known in my life. He would give his time, he would give his money, much to my mother's consternation. She told him that if he got remarried after she died, that she would haunt him because she knew he would give away his daughter's inheritance. (laughs) Are you ready for that? Well, let me tell you, he was a deeply generous person, and because of that, I think, was among the happiest people I've ever known. And when he came to the table of God's grace when we were growing up in in that Methodist church, we always had what I like to call chiclets and shot glasses for communion. You know, we had little trays with little baby wafers and then little juice cups, right? And my dad would go and kneel at that altar in that Methodist church. And when the pastor said, this is my body given for you, take and eat, he'd take a whole handful of those chicklets and he'd tilt his head back and just pour them into his mouth. I am not kidding you. Because you see, I think he really got it. He got that the table of grace was so abundant that he was going to take every bite of it he could. That's the good news today. Thanks be to God. Amen.